Section nine of Woman in the Nineteenth Century. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Elizabeth Clett. Woman in the Nineteenth Century, and Kindred Papers Relating to the Sphere, Condition, and Duties of Women, by Margaret Fuller. Section nine. Woman in the Nineteenth Century, Part Seven. There are two aspects of woman's nature, represented by the ancients as Muse and Minerva. It is the former to which the writer in the Pathfinder looks. It is the latter which Wordsworth has in mind when he says, With a placid brow, which woman ne'er should forfeit, keep thy vow. The especial genius of woman I believe to be electrical in movement, intuitive in function, spiritual in tendency. She excels not so easily in classification or recreation as in an instinctive seizure of causes, and a simple breathing out of what she receives that has the singleness of life, rather than the selecting and energizing of art. More native is it to her to be the living model of the artist than to set apart from herself any one form in objective reality, more native to inspire and receive the poem than to create it. In so far as soul is in her completely developed, all soul is the same, but in so far as it is modified in her as woman, it flows, it breathes, it sings, rather than deposits soil or finishes work. And that which is especially feminine flushes in blossom the face of earth and pervades, like air and water, all this seeming solid globe, daily renewing and purifying its life. Such may be the especially feminine element spoken of as femality. But it is no more the order of nature that it should be incarnated pure in any form than that the masculine energy should exist unmingled with it in any form. Male and female represent the two sides of the great radical dualism. But in fact they are perpetually passing into one another. Fluid hardens to solid, solid rushes to fluid. There is no wholly masculine man no purely feminine woman. History jeers at the attempts of physiologists to bind great original laws by the forms which flow from them. They make a rule, they say from observation what can and cannot be. In vain. Nature provides exceptions to every rule. She sends women to battle, and sets Hercules spinning. She enables women to bear immense burdens, cold and frost. She enables the man who feels maternal love to nourish his infant like a mother. Of late she plays still gayer pranks. Not only she deprives organizations, but organs of a necessary end. She enables people to read with the top of the head, and see with the pit of the stomach. Presently she will make a female Newton and a male siren. Man partakes of the feminine in the Apollo woman of the masculine as Minerva. What I mean by the muse is that unimpeded clearness of the intuitive powers, which a perfectly truthful adherence to every admonition of the higher instincts would bring to a finely organized human being. It may appear as prophecy, or as poesy. It enabled Cassandra to foresee the results of actions passing round her, the seeress to behold the true character of the person through the mask of his customary life. Sometimes she saw a feminine form of the man, sometimes the reverse. 
it enabled the daughter of Linnaeus to see the soul of the flower exhaling from the flower. It gave a man, but a poet-man, the power of which he thus speaks. Often in my contemplation of nature, radiant intimations, and as it were sheaves of light, appear before me as to the facts of cosmogony, in which my mind has, perhaps, taken a special part. He wisely adds, but it is necessary with earnestness to verify the knowledge we gain by these flashes of light. And none should forget this. Sight must be verified by light before it can deserve the honours of piety and genius. Yet sight comes first, and of this sight of the world of causes, this approximation to the region of primitive motions, woman I hold to be especially capable. Even without equal freedom with the other sex, they have already shown themselves so, and should these faculties have free play, I believe they will open new, deeper, and purer sources of joyous inspiration than have as yet refreshed the earth. Let us be wise and not impede the soul. Let her work as she will. Let us have one creative energy, one incessant revelation. Let it take what form it will, and let us not bind it by the past to man or woman, black or white. Jove sprang from Rhea, Pallas from Jove. So let it be. If it has been the tendency of these remarks to call woman rather to the Minerva side, if I, unlike the more generous writer, have spoken from society no less than the soul, let it be pardoned. It is love that has caused this, love for many incarcerated souls that might be freed, could the idea of religious self-dependence be established in them, could the weakening habit of dependence on others be broken up. Proclus teaches that every life has, in its sphere, a totality or wholeness of the animating powers of the other spheres, having only, as its own characteristic, a predominance of some one power. Thus Jupiter comprises within himself the other twelve powers, which stand thus. The first triad is demiurgic or fabricative, that is, Jupiter, Neptune, Vulcan. The second defensive, Vesta, Minerva, Mars. The third vivific, Ceres, Juno, Diana. And the fourth, Mercury, Venus, Apollo, elevating and harmonic. In the sphere of Jupiter energy is predominant, with Venus, beauty, but each comprehends and apprehends all the others. When the same community of life and consciousness of mind begin among men, humanity will have, positively and finally, subjugated its brute elements and titanic childhood. Criticism will have perished, arbitrary limits and ignorant censure be impossible. All will have entered upon the liberty of law and the harmony of common growth. Then Apollo will sing to his lyre what Vulcan forges on the anvil, and the muse weave anew the tapestries of Minerva. It is, therefore, only in the present crisis that the preference is given to Minerva. The power of continence must establish the legitimacy of freedom, the power of self-poise the perfection of motion. Every relation, every gradation of nature is incalculably precious, but only to the soul which is poised upon itself, and to whom no loss, no change, can bring dull discord, for it is in harmony with the central soul. If any individual live too much in relations, so that he becomes a stranger to the resources of his own nature, he falls after a while into a distraction, or imbecility, 
from which he can only be cured by a time of isolation, which gives the renovating fountains time to rise up. With a society it is the same. Many minds, deprived of the traditionary or instinctive means of passing a cheerful existence, must find help in self-impulse or perish. It is therefore that, while any elevation in the view of union is to be hailed with joy, we shall not decline celibacy as the great fact of the time. It is one from which no vow, no arrangement can at present save a thinking mind. For now the rowers are pausing on their oars, they wait a change before they can pull together. All tends to illustrate the thought of a wise cotemporary. Union is only possible to those who are units. To be fit for relations in time, souls, whether of man or woman, must be able to do without them in the spirit. It is therefore that I would have woman lay aside all thought, such as she habitually cherishes, of being taught and led by men. I would have her, like the Indian girl, dedicate herself to the sun, the sun of truth, and go nowhere if his beams did not make clear the path. I would have her free from compromise, from complacence, from helplessness, because I would have her good enough and strong enough to love one and all beings, from the fullness, not the poverty, of being. Men, as at present instructed, will not help this work, because they are also under the slavery of habit. I have seen with delight their poetic impulses. A sister is the fairest ideal, and how nobly Wordsworth and even Byron have written of a sister. There is no sweeter sight than to see a father with his little daughter. Very vulgar men become refined to the eye when leading a little girl by the hand. At that moment the right relation between the sexes seems established, and you feel as if the man would aid in the noblest purpose if you ask him in behalf of his little daughter. Once two fine figures stood before me thus. The father of very intellectual aspect, his falcon eye softened by affection as he looked down on his fair child, she the image of himself, only more graceful and brilliant in expression. I was reminded of Southey's Kahama, when, lo, the dream was rudely broken. They were talking of education, and he said, "'I shall not have Maria brought too forward. If she knows too much, she will never find a husband. Superior women hardly ever can.' "'Surely,' said his wife, with a blush, "'you wish Maria to be as good and wise as she can, whether it will help her to marriage or not.' "'No,' he persisted. I want her to have a sphere and a home, and some one to protect her when I am gone." It was a trifling incident, but it made a deep impression. I felt that the holiest relations fail to instruct the unprepared and perverted mind. If this man, indeed, could have looked at it on the other side, he was the last that would have been willing to have been taken himself for the home and protection he could give, but would have been much more likely to repeat the tale of Alcibiades with his vials but men do not look at both sides, and women must leave off asking them and being influenced by them, but retire within themselves, and explore the groundwork of life till they find their peculiar secret. Then, when they come forth again, renovated and baptized, they will know how to turn all dross to gold, and will be rich and free, though they live in a hut, tranquil if in a crowd. Then their sweet singing shall not be from passionate impulse, but the lyrical overflow of a divine rapture and a new music shall be evolved from this many-corded world. Grant her then for a while the armour and the javelin. 
let her put from her the press of other minds, and meditate in virgin loneliness. The same idea shall reappear in due time as Muse or Ceres, the all-kindly, patient earth-spirit. Among the throng of symptoms which denote the present tendency to a crisis in the life of woman, which resembles the change from girlhood with its beautiful instincts but unharmonized thoughts, its blind pupilage and restless asking, to self-possessed, wise and graceful womanhood, I have attempted to select a few. One of prominent interest is the unison upon the subject of three male minds, which, for width of culture, power of concentration, and dignity of aim, take rank as the prophets of the coming age, while their histories and labours are rooted in the past. Swedenborg came, he tells us, to interpret the past revelation and unfold anew. He announces the new church that is to prepare the way for the new Jerusalem, a city built of precious stones, hardened and purified by secret processes in the veins of earth through the ages. Swedenborg approximated to that harmony between the scientific and poetic lives of mind which we hope from the perfected man. The links that bind together the realms of nature, the mysteries that accompany her births and growths, were unusually plain to him. He seems a man to whom insight was given at a period when the mental frame was sufficiently matured to retain and express its gifts. His views of woman are in the main satisfactory. In some details we may object to them, as in all his system there are still remains of what is arbitrary and seemingly groundless, fancies that show the marks of old habits, and a nature as yet not thoroughly leavened with the spiritual leaven. At least so it seems to me now. I speak reverently, for I find such reason to venerate Swedenborg from an imperfect knowledge of his mind that I feel one more perfect might explain to me much that does not now secure my sympathy. His idea of woman is sufficiently large and noble to interpose no obstacle to her progress. His idea of marriage is consequently sufficient. Man and woman share an angelic ministry. The union is of one with one, permanent and pure. As the new church extends its ranks, the needs of woman must be more considered. Quakerism also establishes woman on a sufficient equality with man. But, though the original thought of Quakerism is pure, its scope is too narrow, and its influence, having established a certain amount of good and made clear some truth, must by degrees be merged in one of wider range. The mind of Swedenborg appeals to the various nature of man, and allows room for aesthetic culture and the free expression of energy. As apostle of the new order, of the social fabric that is to rise from love, and supersede the old that was based on strife, Charles Fourier comes next, expressing, in an outward order, many facts of which Swedenborg saw the secret springs. The mind of Fourier, though grand and clear, was in some respects superficial. He was a stranger to the highest experiences. His eye was fixed on the outward more than the inward needs of man. Yet he too was a seer of the divine order, in its musical expression, if not in its poetic soul. He has filled one department of instruction for the new era, and the harmony in action and freedom for individual growth he hopes shall exist, and if the methods he proposes should not prove the true ones, yet his fair proposition shall give many hints, and make room for the inspiration needed for such. He too places woman on an entire equality with man, and wishes to give one, as to the other, that independence which must result from intellectual and practical development. Those who will consult him for no other reason might do so to see how the energies of woman may be made available in the pecuniary way. 
the object of Fourier was to give her the needed means of self-help, that she might dignify and unfold her life for her own happiness and that of society. The many now who see their daughters liable to destitution or vice to escape from it, may be interested to examine the means, if they have not yet soul enough to appreciate the ends he proposes. On the opposite side of the advancing army leads the great apostle of individual culture, Goethe. Swedenborg makes organization and union the necessary results of solitary thought. Fourier, whose nature was, above all, constructive, looked to them too exclusively. Better institutions, he thought, will make better men. Goethe expressed in every way the other side. If one man could present better forms, the rest could not use them till ripe for them. Fourier says, as the institutions, so the men. All follies are excusable and natural under bad institutions. Goethe thinks, as the man, so the institutions. There is no excuse for ignorance and folly. A man can grow in any place if he will. Ay, but Goethe, bad institutions are prison walls, and impure air that make him stupid, so that he does not will. And thou, Fourier, do not expect to change mankind at once, or even in three generations by arrangement of groups and series, or flourish of trumpets for attractive industry. If these attempts are made by unready men, they will fail. Yet we prize the theory of Fourier no less than the profound suggestion of Goethe. Both are educating the age to a clearer consciousness of what man needs, what man can be, and better life must ensue. Goethe, proceeding on his own track, elevating the human being in the most imperfect states of society, by continual efforts at self-culture, takes as good care of women as of men. His mother, the bold gay Frau Aja, with such playful freedom of nature, the wise and gentle maiden known in his youth over whose sickly solitude the Holy Ghost brooded as a dove, his sister, the intellectual woman par excellence, the Duchess Amelia. Lily, who combined the character of the woman of the world with the lyrical sweetness of the shepherdess, on whose chaste and noble breast flowers and gems were equally at home. All these had supplied abundant suggestions to his mind, as to the wants and the possible excellencies of woman. And from his poetic soul grew up forms new and more admirable than life has yet produced, for whom his clear eye marked out paths in the future. In Faust, Margaret represents the redeeming power which at present upholds woman while waiting for a better day. The lovely little girl, pure in instinct, ignorant in mind, is misled and profaned by man abusing her confidence. To the mater dolorosa she appeals for aid. It is given to the soul, if not against outward sorrow, and the maiden, enlightened by her sufferings, refusing to perceive temporal salvation by the aid of an evil power, obtains the eternal in its stead. In the second part, the intellectual man, after all his manifold strivings, owes to the interposition of her whom he had betrayed his salvation. She intercedes this time, herself a glorified spirit, with the mater gloriosa. Leonora, too, is woman as we see her now, pure, thoughtful, refined by much acquaintance with grief. Iphigenia he speaks of in his journals as his daughter, and she is the daughter whom a man will wish, even if he has chosen his wife from very mean motives. She is the virgin, steadfast, soul, to whom falsehood is more dreadful than any other death. But it is to Wilhelm Meister's apprenticeship and wandering years that I would especially refer, 
as these volumes contain the sum of the sage's observations during a long life, as to what man should do, under present circumstances, to obtain mastery over outward, through an initiation into inward life, and severe discipline of faculty. As Wilhelm advances into the upward path, he becomes acquainted with better forms of woman, by knowing how to seek, and how to prize them when found. For the weak and immature man will often admire a superior woman, but he will not be able to abide by such a feeling which is too severe a tax on his habitual existence. But with Wilhelm the gradation is natural, and expresses assent in the scale of being. At first he finds charm in Mariana and Felina, very common forms of feminine character, not without redeeming traits, no less than charms, but without wisdom or purity. Soon he is attended by Mignon, the finest expression ever yet given to what I have called the lyrical element in woman. She is a child, but too full-grown for this man. He loves, but cannot follow her. Yet is the association not without an enduring influence. Poesy has been domesticated in his life, and though he strives to bind down her heavenward impulse, as art or apothegm, these are only the tenets, beneath which he may sojourn for a while, but which may be easily struck and carried on limitless wanderings. Advancing into the region of thought, he encounters a wise philanthropy in Natalia, instructed, let us observe, by an uncle, practical judgment and the outward economy in life of Teresa, pure devotion in the fair saint. Further and last he comes to the house of Macaria, the soul of a star, that is, a pure and perfected intelligence embodied in female form, and the centre of a world whose members revolve harmoniously around her. She instructs him in the archives of a rich human history, and introduces him to the contemplation of the heavens. From the hours passed by the side of Mariana to these with Macaria is a wide distance for human feet to traverse. Nor has Wilhelm travelled so far, seen and suffered so much, in vain. He now begins to study how he may aid the next generation. He sees objects in harmonious arrangement, and from his observations deduces precepts by which to guide his course as a teacher and a master, helpful, comfortful. In all these expressions of woman, the aim of Goethe is satisfactory to me. He aims at a pure self-subsistence, and a free development of any powers with which they may be gifted by nature as much for them as for men. They are units, addressed as souls. Accordingly the meeting between man and woman as represented by him is equal and noble, and if he does not depict marriage, he makes it possible. In the Macaria, bound with the heavenly bodies and fixed revolutions, the centre of all relations, herself unrelated, he expresses the Minerva side of feminine nature. It was not by chance that Goethe gave her this name. Macaria, the daughter of Hercules, who offered herself as a victim for the good of her country, was canonized by the Greeks, and worshipped as the goddess of true felicity. Goethe has embodied this felicity as the serenity that arises from wisdom, a wisdom such as the Jewish wise man venerated, alike instructed in the designs of heaven, and the methods necessary to carry them into effect upon earth. Mignon is the electrical, inspired, lyrical nature, and wherever it appears we echo in our aspirations that of the child, so let me seem until I be, take not the white robe away. Though I lived without care and toil, yet felt I sharp pain enough to make me again for ever young. All these women, though we see them in relations, we can think of as unrelated. They are all very individual, yet seem nowhere restrained. 
they satisfy for the present, yet arouse an infinite expectation. The economist Teresa, the benevolent Natalia, the fair saint have chosen a path, but their thoughts are not narrowed to it. The functions of life to them are not ends, but suggestions. Thus to them all things are important, because none is necessary. Their different characters have fair play, and each is beautiful in its minute indications, for nothing is enforced or conventional. But everything, however slight, grows from the essential life of the being. Mignon and Teresa wear male attire when they like, and it is graceful for them to do so, while Macaria is confined to her armchair behind the green curtain, and the fair saint could not bear a speck of dust on her robe. All things are in their places in this little world, because all is natural and free, just as there is room for everything out of doors. Yet all is rounded in by natural harmony, which will always arise where truth and love are sought in the light of freedom. Goethe's book bodes an era of freedom like its own, of extraordinary generous seeking, and new revelations. New individualities shall be developed in the actual world, which shall advance upon it as gently as the figures come out upon his canvas. I have indicated on this point the coincidence between his hopes and those of Fourier, though his are directed by an infinitely higher and deeper knowledge of human nature. But for our present purpose it is sufficient to show how surely these different paths have conducted to the same end two earnest thinkers. In some other place I wish to point out similar coincidences between Goethe's model school and the plans of Fourier, which may cast light upon the page of prophecy. End of section 9